Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The parable of the sower is not only the most famous of Jesus' parables, it is also the most important. At least that was Jesus' own estimation of its place among his teachings. When his true inner circle of followers, they're identified there as those around him with the twelve, when they asked him to explain the parable, Jesus responded in verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables. Well, according to Jesus, the parable of the sower, then, is the parable of parables. It is the key to understanding all of Jesus' teaching. In fact, the parable of the sower is the key to understanding the mystery of the kingdom of God, according to verses 11 and 13. And as such, this parable proves immensely helpful in understanding the ministry of this church because a local church is nothing other than the kingdom of God made visible on the earth. The local church is the embassy of God's kingdom located on the foreign soil of this world. And therefore, since the parable of the sower is the key to understanding the mystery of the kingdom, it is also the key to understanding the ministry of the church. For instance, The parable of the sower explains our fundamental task as a church. Our calling is to sow the seed, that is to speak the word of Christ. It explains how people enter into the kingdom of God and are saved. They enter by hearing and receiving the word in faith. It explains Why some appear to hear and receive the word and thus appear to be saved and yet fall away or prove unfaithful, and it tells us what we are to make of such people. And it explains how we can know that we ourselves have truly entered into the kingdom of God. These are essential questions for a church to ask, and the answers are supplied all in this single parable. In other words... The parable of the sower deals with the ultimate themes of the church and the gospel, of salvation and judgment, of 
perseverance, and apostasy. And we cannot afford to misunderstand or ignore its message because if we do not understand this parable, according to Jesus, how are we going to understand any of the parables? And if we do not understand this parable or the other parables, how will we understand the mystery of the kingdom which is revealed therein? And if we do not understand the mystery of the kingdom, how will we ever enter in to the kingdom? So this is a vital topic this morning. Do not ignore the voice of the king who begins the parable of parables with the imperative to listen or hear. And concludes the parable in the very same way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So that's my charge to you this morning. Hear the mystery of the kingdom revealed in this parable. But before we dive into the explanation of the parable itself, in verse 13, I want us to explore what Jesus says about parables in general in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 reads, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, and then he quotes here, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." You ever heard somebody say that Jesus spoke in parables, he used concrete word pictures familiar to his context in order to help his audience comprehend spiritual truth? You ever heard people explain parables in that way? It's usually expressed something like this. Jesus was a good teacher because he didn't use big words to teach difficult concepts. Rather, he employed simple stories from everyday life that people could understand. Well, according to Jesus himself, that's not entirely true. For one thing, I tire of this incessant insistence that people are incapable of understanding big words and big ideas. People are not chimpanzees that can only communicate in simple gestures that represent monosyllabic words. You are created in the image of the living God, and therefore you possess the power of moral reasoning and a profoundly intelligent mind. That's precisely why the Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire books like Romans and Hebrews and to give them not to the scholarly elite, but to the church. Evidently, he thinks the church, that is the people in the pews, are capable of understanding big words and big ideas about a big God. Jesus was certainly not afraid of speaking intelligent words to intelligent people. So that is not why he spoke in parables, to try to make hard things easy. According to Jesus, he spoke in parables because the medium of the parable allowed him to do two things at one and the same time. Parables allowed him at one time, at one and the same time, to conceal the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God from those outside, 
and at the same time to reveal the mystery to those inside. The parable allowed him to do the two things at once, to conceal the mystery of the kingdom from those who are outside and to reveal the mystery of the kingdom to those who are inside. Now, I read commentators this week who fell all over themselves trying to make this text say something other than what it says, which is not uncommon. To them, the notion that Jesus would intentionally conceal the secret of the kingdom, that he would veil it, as it were, in a parable is repugnant and completely adverse to their preferred understanding of Christ and his purpose. But with all due respect, they are approaching the issue all wrong. We have no right to alter Jesus' words or try to soften them and make them more palatable to our democratic post-enlightenment age. When his followers approached him and asked him why he spoke in parables, this was his answer. When they asked him what the parable of the sower meant, Jesus answered in terms of his sovereign choice. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But to them, to those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus then explained the parable of the sower to those inside his small group of followers, his church, but he left it unexplained to those outside. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus conceal the mystery of the kingdom to some and yet reveal it to others? Well, part of the answer comes from his quotation there in verse 13. The quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, which is that famous, here I am, send me passage. In that passage, God sends the prophet Isaiah on a mission But, even though that text is usually used in missionary commissioning services, actually, God sends his prophet on a mission not of salvation, but a mission of judgment to a hard-hearted and rebellious people who have turned away to idols and have followed them for centuries. God sends Isaiah to preach And through his preaching, God says that he will harden their hearts, he will deafen their ears, he will blind their eyes until their cities are laid waste and the people are carried away into exile. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. In other words, Isaiah's preaching was the instrument of judgment upon Israel, rendering them irrevocably hardened and deafened and blinded. Yet the Lord promised at the end that he would preserve for himself a remnant, the holy seed, he calls them, in verse 13. So, by quoting this passage as an explanation for why he speaks in parables, Jesus is telling us something. He's telling us that he is fulfilling the mission of Isaiah once more to go to a hard-hearted and rebellious people and to speak to them the mystery of the kingdom so that they would be confirmed and sealed in their hardness and the Lord's judgment would come upon them. That's what he says, whether you like it or not. 
He came to his own, and his own received him not. When Jesus first appeared, he taught the people clearly and plainly, and he performed astounding miracles, and yet they rejected him as their Messiah. Therefore, God handed them over to judgment while they yet lived. And Jesus' preaching was the instrument of that judgment. I want to read you a quotation from John MacArthur who comments on this section in this way. He says, Due to the people's repeated rejection of his clear teachings and undeniable miracles, from this point on, Jesus would frame his teachings in a way they could not understand. Both the curious crowds and the religious leaders had been given more than enough time and evidence to conclude that Jesus was the Messiah. Yet their unbelief persisted, growing increasingly resolute until it passed the point of no return, which we saw last week in chapter 3. Consequently, divine judgment had set in. Their willful rejection of the Son of God had led to God's judicial rejection of them. God confirmed them in their resolute hard-heartedness, allowing them to remain cemented in their own unbelief. Because their rejection was final, the time had come when they would no longer be given the message. So Jesus' parables further blinded, deafened, and hardened those whose hearts were unwilling to do what Jesus commanded, namely to hear. Those who were unwilling to hear would now be rendered unable to hear. And this was Jesus' own estimation of his ministry. John 9.39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So Jesus' parables have the dual effect of opening up for those who hear the mysteries of the kingdom, but closing off from those who will not hear the mysteries of the kingdom. But that answer does not satisfy me completely because the question still remains as to why his disciples and why we ourselves are able and willing to hear when others are not. Why did we hear the word of the gospel and receive it when others rejected it? What is the the foundational reason for that distinction? Is it something in me? Is it because I was smarter than they are? Is it because I was more righteous than they are? Is it because I am more humble than they are? Certainly not. Or else I would have grounds in which to boast in my own salvation. So why? Why did we see when all others do not see and remain blind? What is the difference between you and all of your unbelieving friends and neighbors that you passed on the way to church this morning? Any way you turn in Scripture, you cannot get away from the truth that Jesus is King and that as King, He makes the final determination as to who enters into His kingdom. It is Jesus 
who in the final analysis determines what kind of soil you are and therefore what kind of reception the seed of his word will find. This is what he says in Luke 10, 21 to 22. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Do you see the same principle at work here? He's hiding from some and he's revealing to others. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And there comes that last phrase, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Why did you believe? Because the Son chose to reveal the Father to you. What are you going to do in the face of Luke 10.22? What are you going to do in the face of such stunning sovereignty? What are you going to do when you come to the realization that your seeing and your hearing and your receiving does not depend upon your own willing and running, but upon God who has mercy, Romans 9.16? I suggest that you pray. And I suggest that you listen. If you're here this morning and you don't know whether Luke 10.22 has happened in your heart, whether the Father has been revealed to you, if you are not sure what kind of soil you are, humble yourself under the mighty and the sovereign hand of Christ and plead for his grace and his mercy to reveal to you the seed of the gospel and to reveal to you the Father and the Son in order that you may see and hear and be saved. See, Jesus is determined, and I think this is why Matthew 10, no, we're not in Matthew, we're in Mark. Mark 4, 10 through 12 is there. I think this is why Jesus' answer to the disciples' question is present and preserved for us in the text. It is so that sovereignty, every last vestige of self-determination would be ripped out of our selfish, self-determining hands and we would be cast utterly helpless and defenseless before a merciful Christ. And that we would plead for mercy. Jesus is determined to bring you to the point where you know that you have no other help. Not even yourself. No help but him. And that's a good place to be. That's the beginning of hearing. The doctrine of God's sovereign election is not intended to drive you to a fatalistic despair. Here's what you should not do as a result of this morning's sermon. You should not say, well, Pastor Tim says that what kind of soil my heart is depends on whether the Son has chosen to make it fruitful or not, so therefore I'm just going to sit back and wait and see if it's fruitful. If that's your response to this message, you're not a fourth soil. You want to know what fourth soil people do? They leave election to God and they say, I don't know about all of that, but I know that Jesus has told me to hear. 
and so I'm going to listen. And he's told me to receive, and so I'm going to believe. So this morning, don't be fatalistic before the, the vista of God's sovereignty. Be humble. Understand that God is God and that you are not. And heed the one command that the king has given you to obey. Hear. Listen. And the wonder of divine sovereignty is that if you hear and listen, it's because the Son has chosen to reveal the Father to you. And you may be amazed at His mercy. So the purpose of parables, this particular way of teaching allowed Jesus to do two things at once. It allowed him to conceal the mysteries of the kingdom from those who would not hear and to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom to those who will. Now, Jesus said in verse 11 that the secret of the kingdom has been hidden in parables. In other words, the parables are like a vault which conceals the truth of the kingdom of God. But to the disciples and to us, the vault has been opened and we've been given that secret. And so in verses 14 to 20, Jesus provides an explanation that he did not give to the crowds. But it's been written down in Scripture and now it's been given to us. All that was given to the crowds is a parable about soils. We have for us the record of Jesus unlocking that parable and explaining it and applying it to our hearts. And so in verses 14 to 20, Jesus opens up the parable of the sower and in it he reveals the mystery of the kingdom to his church. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. There are at least four secrets of the kingdom that are revealed in this parable. And we're going to walk through each this morning. The first secret of the kingdom, which is revealed in the parable of the sower, is that entrance into the kingdom comes by hearing and believing the word. Now, this mystery was unknown to the Jewish people in the first century. That's why it's called a mystery. See, the people of Israel, they expected the imminent coming of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came into the world, he came into a context in which there was a tremendous amount of messianic expectation. Because it was clear from the prophets that the Messiah was coming and that he would bring the kingdom when he came. Everyone agreed that there was coming a day of reckoning, the day of the Lord, and that 
on that day, God would restore the kingdom to Israel through a coming Messiah who was the Davidic king. The prophetic texts which point to this expectation are too numerous to count, but just to give you one example, take Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The people of Israel in the first century, they knew the Messiah was coming. They knew the day of the Lord was at hand. They knew it. That's why they flocked to John the Baptist, because in Malachi it said that the day of the Lord would be preceded by the second coming of Elijah the prophet, and John the Baptist sure looked a whole lot like Elijah. He looked like Elijah, he spoke like Elijah, he probably even smelled like Elijah, And so this this messianic fever is being whipped up. And then Jesus comes and they reject him. Why? Because the people of Israel erred in two major ways in which they understood how one would gain entrance into the kingdom. Some imagined that entrance into the coming kingdom of God would would be by virtue of their birth or their ethnicity, their natural physical descent in the line of Abraham. In other words, I'm an Israelite, therefore I will be included in this kingdom when it comes. I mean, the kingdom was promised to Israel, therefore if they were born into Israel, they would enter the coming kingdom, or so the thought goes. But Jesus comes and says, no, no, no. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not by birth. It's not by ethnicity. You are not in the kingdom simply because you're a part of Israel. Rather, you must be born again into a new humanity. It is by virtue of the new birth that we are born into the chosen race of Abraham. So when John the Baptist comes preaching repentance in the kingdom of God, he says to the people of Israel, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, the man of the Pharisees, the ruler of the Jews, the Israelite of Israelites, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Translation, I don't care about your religious pedigree. I don't care about your theological education. I don't care about your Pharisaic morality. If you are not born of the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom. When Paul was expounding the gospel of the kingdom in Romans, he wrote this, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
So physical descent in the line of Abraham, that is being an ethnic Israelite, does not gain entrance into the kingdom of God. It did not then and it does not now. You must be born again. But there was a second misunderstanding that was prevalent in his day. Others imagined that entrance into the coming kingdom would be by virtue of their works of righteousness and their obedience to the law. That is, if they worked hard enough, if they kept the law enough, if they prayed enough, if they brought the right sacrifices at the right time, if they kept the appointed feasts, then God would let them in. In other words, if they were good Jews, God would let them into the coming kingdom of God. The problem was, even though they could restrain the flesh, they could not change the heart. Even though they could obey God's rules or so they thought, they could not love him from the heart. And so this was Jesus' estimation of them. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Paul, when attempting to explain why it was that so many Israelites in his day did not enter the kingdom of God when it was presented to them, wrote, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So those were the two prevailing notions in Jesus' day as to how one entered the kingdom. Either you enter the kingdom by, your, by virtue of your physical descent from Israel, your birth, or you enter the kingdom by your works of righteousness and your careful adherence to the law your works. And Jesus comes in and says, no, that is not how you enter the kingdom. You enter the kingdom by hearing and believing the word. The parable of the sower reveals the mystery of the kingdom, that entrance into the kingdom of God comes not by birth nor by works of righteousness, but by hearing and believing the word of the gospel. Here is the operative word in this parable. The seed is the word of the gospel, and the soils are those who hear the word. But not all hearing gains entrance into the kingdom, does it? Notice that the first soil, the soil that falls along the path, hears the word. But it doesn't sink in, and Satan comes and he snatches it away. Likewise, the second soil, that's sown on the rocky ground hears the word, even receives it with joy, but it has no root, and so when the heat of tribulation or persecution comes, it falls away. So does the third soil, the soil among thorns. It hears the word, but eventually it is choked out by the various distractions which the world has to offer. But the fourth soil, the good soil, hears the word, and this time the hearing is different. For one thing, although it's not 
evident in the English text, the first three soils, when they heard the gospel, it's given in the aorist tense, meaning that they heard the gospel once. But when you get to the fourth soil, Mark switches, or rather Jesus switches. And he says that they hear the gospel and it's in the present tense, meaning they hear and continue to hear the gospel. They hear the word and they keep hearing it. They receive the word and they keep receiving it. That's the difference between a saved person and a lost person. That's the difference between a saved church member and a lost church member. Saved people hear the word and receive the word and continually hear the word and receive the word. And that continual hearing and receiving bears fruit, fruit that remains. That's the kind of hearing and receiving, deeply believing that saves and gains entrance into the kingdom of God. So what kind of soil are you? Well, what kind of hearing represents your relationship to the word of Christ? Did you hear it once, way back when, and even receive it with joy? Back at that youth camp on Thursday night cry night, Or some well-paid evangelist comes in and gets all of the kids to come make decisions. Did you hear it way back when at that Billy Graham crusade or that revival service? And even receive it with joy. Or do you continually hear and receive the word as if it is the life-giving water and nourishment for the plant of your heart. So that you depend upon it day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out, to continue to grow and to continue to bear fruit. What is your relationship to the Word? That will determine what kind of soil you are. Entrance into the kingdom is not by birth, it's by new birth. And it's not by works, it's not by being a good Jew, first century, it's not by being a good church member, 21st century. It is by hearing and receiving and continuing to hear and receive the word of the gospel. That's mystery number one. Number two, the second mystery of the kingdom revealed in this parable is that the seed of the word of God must be sown everywhere, even in those places that appear hopelessly unproductive. Now, several commentators excuse the farmer in this parable by making the claim that in Palestine, the order of of sowing and plowing is reversed so that The seed is sown and then it's plowed under rather than the way that we typically do it, which is that you plow in the soil and then you sow the seed. So that the sower expects the seed that he sows to be plowed under regardless of how unproductive the the surface appears. I find that view doubtful because I think it obscures one of the main points of the parable. 
Seed was expensive in Jesus' day, just as it is in our day. And farmers know their fields. They know where the good soil is. They know where the rocky ground is. They know where the fallow ground is. They know where the paths are that surround the field. Rather, I think Jesus intends this aspect of the parable to be surprising. What kind of farmer throws away seed on a path? What kind of farmer throws away seed on thorny soil or rocky soil? What kind of farmer throws away seed on ground known to have shallow soil over a thick limestone bed? Well, Jesus does. He spreads the seed of the Word of God indiscriminately, even promiscuously, even wastefully, and furthermore, He expects his church to do the same thing. The church is now the sower of the seed, but we are not Jesus. Jesus knows his field, and he knows where the hard ground lies, and he knows where the rocks and the thorns are, and he knows where the good soil is that will produce the bountiful harvest, but we don't. And we cannot tell by looking at the outward appearance. Very often, ground that looks promising has impenetrable rock beneath the surface, and ground that looks hard proves fruitful. Some of the nicest people you will ever meet have some of the hardest hearts, and some of the scariest, most wretched sinners you know prove to be tremendously fruitful. Therefore, the role of the sower that cannot look beneath the surface is to sow the seed of the Word of God everywhere. In the world of farming, that's a terribly wasteful practice, but in the kingdom of God, that is what faithfulness looks like. And that is a mystery of the kingdom revealed. Third, the third mystery of the kingdom revealed in the parable of the sower is that not everyone who professes faith possesses faith. That is why Jesus' parable contains four soils, hard, rocky, thorny, and good, instead of only two, that is, good and bad. You wonder why he does that? Why doesn't he just have good soil and bad soil and tell his people to be good soil? Well, because not every soil that appears to good to be good actually is good. When Jesus explains the parable and we recognize that the soil represents people and their differing responses to the word of The gospel, a great mystery of the kingdom of God, is revealed. Why why do so many people make a start in the Christian life only to fall away in coming weeks or coming months or coming years? And how are we to explain their departure from the faith? Every one of us knows people like this. Every one of us. Well, we explain it in this way according to this parable. The soil of their heart was flawed from the beginning. Their so-called faith was false, and so was their conversion. As Adrian Rogers said, in the way that only he could, faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. Say that five times fast. This mystery is illustrated by the second and the third types of soil. In the second soil, the rocky ground, okay, I think what we're supposed to picture here is a shallow layer of topsoil over a limestone bed. The seed 
rapidly germinated and sprouted due to the warmth of the shallow soil and the fact that the bedrock beneath had trapped in the moisture and the nutrients in the shallow layer. But when the sun rose, which Jesus says represents tribulation and persecution on account of the word, the young plant was scorched, it withered up, and it died because it had no depth of soil and it had no established root system. Once the initial nutrients were used up, there was no more to be found. This explains why many who are visible members of the church, professing Christians who once received the word with joy, and by the way, that's a very important phrase there because I've heard people, usually, usually this is found in parents, who will say to me something about their child who hasn't darkened the door of the church in a decade and is living an immoral and profligate life, but they'll say, I remember when he was saved and he was so happy. Their happiness does not validate their conversion. The second soil received the word with joy. This is why those people who seemed to grow for a little while then turned away when the heat came, when tragedy strikes, or when a loved one died, or when cancer afflicts the body, or when the cost of following Christ becomes too high and they're simply no longer willing to pay it. See, tribulation of any kind has the effect of revealing the quality of our faith. A true faith, a faith that has its roots in Christ, cannot die because The tribulation will only reveal its reality and its strength. So when a person falls away due to tribulation or persecution, it's because they did not truly believe. That's one half of the mystery revealed in this parable. In the second soil, the other half is found in the third soil. Tribulation and persecution, evidently, are not the only reason why those who appeared to be believers fell away. In the third type of soil, the thorny, weed-infested soil, the plant is choked out by external forces so that it cannot receive the sunlight and the moisture and the nutrients it needs to survive. Jesus identifies these thorns and weeds as the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. The third type of soil represents those who make a profession of faith. They hang on for a time. But all of the things of the world begin to compete for their affections and their attentions. Give you a few common ones. Traveling sports teams that take you away from church every weekend for months at a time. A job that demands more and more and more of your time and attention until one day you wake up and find that you haven't been to church in months. You haven't cracked open your Bible or prayed and even longer than that. And furthermore, the recognition of that fact doesn't even startle you. Why? Because once saved, always saved, right? Or that oft-used excuse, well, Sunday is family time. In other words, our life is so filled by the cares of this world that when it comes to Sunday, we we get rid of the ministry of the Word and of the gathered church in order to have family time. And that sounds very holy, but it's not. 
Any care of the world that stands as the chief affection of your life and relegates Jesus to a tiny corner to which you'll go when you need him, that is when somebody gets sick or something, be not deceived. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and youth sports. You cannot serve both God and television. You cannot serve both God and the lake. You cannot serve both God and family. If you cut yourself off from the nutrients that cause your soul to live and grow and thrive, that is, if you stop hearing and believing, you will wither and die and your faith will be proven false. That's the second half of the mystery. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both Christ and the world. Many have tried and many have died. Which brings us to the fourth mystery of the kingdom revealed in this parable. Fruit bearing is the only sure evidence of saving faith. It's the only one. How do you know you're saved? You don't if there's no fruit. Three of the four soils sprouted with visible growth, didn't they? I mean, only one of them rejected the word out of hand. But of those second, third, and fourth types of soil, only one type produced a plant that will remain to the time of the harvest and will be gathered into the barn, which represents being gathered into the kingdom. This tells us something about the nature of the kingdom of God in this age. There are going to be many, many people walking through this world who look like Christians by their outward profession, but the only sure evidence that their faith is real is if it bears abundant fruit. So what kind of fruit does a Christian bear? Well, let's, let's take the fourth soil and compare it against the second and third because that's what Jesus seems to be doing. Number one, a true Christian bears the fruit of an unshakable and persevering faith even in the midst of trials and tribulations. This is what the person represented by the second soil lacked. They had no roots, they had no depth, and therefore they had no ability to persevere when life got difficult and hot and consequently they withered up and fell away. Therefore, a true Christian, it's not that the fourth type of soil doesn't endure the heat of the sun. It's that it remains through the heat of the sun, and the heat of the sun actually has the effect of strengthening its roots. A true Christian has a faith which has roots extending ever deeper into the nutrient-rich soil of the Word, and therefore it is able to draw from the Word what it needs to endure the heat of the day. For instance... Their faith is able to endure the death of a loved one, or the death of a marriage, or cancer, or joblessness, or persecution, or hostility from the world. Why? Because their roots are anchored in the word of God that reveals his sovereignty, his kindness, his goodness, and his unshakable promise to cause all things to work for good to those who love him and are called according to his promise and they are able to draw from the word the strength they need to endure. Second, a true Christian bears the fruit of an unrivaled affection for Christ above all things. 
This was the trouble with those represented by the third type of soil. Their affections for the things of this world were not severed or at least subordinated to Christ as the soul's Lord and King and utmost love. And this is the fundamental difference between those who are truly born again and those who possess a merely temporary or superficial attraction to Christ. Every one of us were born into this world with a nature that places ourself at the center of our own little universe as the object of greatest mass and weight and value, and we are born and grow up with everything orbiting, everything in this life orbiting around us as the gravitational center of our own little cosmos. Very often, if we grow up in the right context, we'll even add Jesus as one of those little planets that orbits around our sun. But the new birth radically alters that balance. The regenerating power of the Holy Spirit turns our souls upside down and we recognize that God is the center of all reality and that He is the object of greatest mass and value and that we orbit around Him and when we do, He keeps everything else in our life in its proper orbit as well. Things like youth sports and television and the lake and money and family. Therefore, we do not get choked out. And when those two fundamental fruits are present, when you possess an unshakable and persevering faith that's been tested and tried in the fires of tribulation, and when you possess an unrivaled and growing affection for Christ above all things, every other fruit of the Holy Spirit is produced in abundance, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And over the course of your life, the yield will be abundant, even absurd, 30, 60, 100-fold. What does knowing these mysteries mean for the church? First, it means that we will take professions of faith with a grain of salt. I think that's one of the points of this parable. It's good when someone professes faith in Christ, and we rejoice in that. But a profession of faith does not prove the possession of faith. We should expect to see the fruit of saving faith in due time. And this is one of the primary reasons. If you're new to this church and you wondered, this is one of the primary reasons that we don't have altar calls. Because a profession of faith, apart from any evidence, means very little and, in fact, can be rather confusing to the church if it is not followed by fruit. What it appears to the church is that many, many people are getting saved and that their lives are not actually being transformed, and so it confuses them and the world as to what a Christian actually is. We need to be as careful as possible with professions of faith. This also has implications for who we baptize. We need to see the beginnings of fruit in the life of a convert. A church should not baptize upon profession of faith. I know that the Baptist in you is taking in a deep breath right now. Listen, 
Baptist churches historically have never said that we should baptize upon a profession of faith. Rather, we should baptize upon a credible profession of faith. You look back at church constitutions and statements of faith in Baptist life for as long as there have been Baptists, and you will find that phrase, credible profession of faith, meaning there needs to be some initial fruit of repentance and faith. There needs to begin to be some severing from the affections of the world and the beginning of a shown affection, a demonstrated affection for Christ. The same goes for those whom we receive into membership. A profession of faith is not sufficient. Yeah, I believe all that. The profession must be credible on the basis of the fruit which Jesus says must be evident. Secondly, it means that as Christians, we need to persevere. Perseverance and fruit bearing is the only sure sign that we're real. We need to be sending our roots down deep into the Word and stretching up our branches up towards the sun because this is how we bear the fruit that provides the evidence for the reality of our faith. The assurance of salvation is not a static thing. It's not something that you can pray a prayer for and mark on the back of a card and suddenly you're zapped with assurance. It's not designed to be that way. Read Romans 5. Read 1 Peter 1. Read the book of Hebrews. Assurance is dynamic. It grows. It strengthens as I persevere in faith through trials and as I find the grace of God severing the ties of my heart to money and to sex and to prestige and to popularity and, and my, my bondage to what other people think about me, as I find those things beginning to wane and my desire for Christ beginning to grow, my assurance grows with it and I have the confidence of knowing I'm real. The grace of God is at work and manifest in my heart and in my life. Do you see why Jesus when asked by his disciples about the meaning of all this, said, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any of the parables? The parable of the sower is the key to understanding the kingdom of God. And indeed, in many respects, it's the key to entering the kingdom of God. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Our Lord Jesus I pray that right now in this time of response, we would respond to the word that has been spoken. You gave a command to those who heard, and I give this command to them from you. Hear and receive the word of the gospel. Hear and receive the word of the kingdom. If you are here and you're not sure what kind of soil you are, it all begins by hearing and receiving. Receive 
this word of the gospel. Cry out to Jesus. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to help you repent. Ask him to help you follow him and love him and trust him above all other things. Cry out to him. And for those of you who are here and you've received and believed the word of the gospel, that you're struggling, the sun is risen, trials are at hand, you feel the pool of the world poking into you like thorns. Send your roots down deep into this word. Stretch out your branches upward towards the sun. Drink in the nutrients that God has for you. As we prayed at the beginning of this service in that Lord's Day prayer, drink grace from this fountain that is open during this time of corporate worship. The song that we sing, drink it. The word that is preached, drink it. The prayers that are prayed, drink them in. And let them nourish and strengthen your faith.